Welcome to Tales Ahoy. This podcast series from Orkney, Scotland, will transport you to the dark, enchanted island of Hoy, where a valley of voices will take you on a walk through time and place. Arrive by sea and take in the impressive view of the hills of Hoy. Meet the ferryman and watch the pier being built. On this journey, you will hear about the shipwrecks of Hoy and the islanders' rescue missions. Visit the Norse farm at the Boot, past the medieval kirk, and hear about the Bullock-pulled mail service, the Hoy Express. Around 400 people live across the whole island of Hoy, and about 40 live at the north end of the island, in the parish of Hoy. It is here in the parish where our stories are set. The name Hoy comes from the Old Norse word hay, meaning high island. The hills of Hoy dominate the landscape of the west mainland of Orkney. They are Orkney's highest points rising up in stark contrast to the low-lying rolling landscape. These hills were shaped by glaciers and scarred by wind. But how did they come to be here? Folklorist and storyteller Tom Muir has a tale. There was once a giant who lived in Caithness, and he had a very unusual hobby because he loved gardening. And the land in Caithness wasn't that good. And he would stand and look at the islands of Orkney across the water, and they were so green and fertile that he thought some soil from there in his garden, he could grow anything. So he took a straw basket, a casey, put it on his back. He took his staff in his hand and he waded out across the Pentland Firth. He was so big that the water didn't come up to his knees. And he arrived in Orkney, he found a likely spot, he put down the casey, and with one of his giant hands he took a great scoop of earth and he dumped it into the casey, and another great scoop of earth with his other hand and he dumped that into the casey. Then he slung it on his back and he headed away. Now water flowed into the holes that was left, and that made the Stennis and Harry Lochs. As he was heading off south, a great big piece of turf fell off the top of the casey into the water with a splash and there it remains to this day as the island of Gramsie. But when he got not much further, a terrible thing happened because the fettel, the band that holds the casey on his back, snapped and all the earth fell down and that made the hills ahoy. And he picked up his empty casey and he went back to Caithness and he never came back to Orkney again but we still have those hills. That's the tale of how the Hoy Hills travelled here. But what about you? You may live here. If you're a visitor, you will probably have taken the short half-hour crossing across Hoy Sound, between Strumness and Moness. 
In earlier days, there wasn't even a pier here. Everything had to be put into a dinghy and rowed ashore, and that was inconvenient. They, they couldn't get bigger things ashore. I was a teenager, uh, a friend and myself, we went over to Hoy for an adventure, a weekend at the hostel. There wasn't a pier there then. A little boat took you to the low tide and you had to scramble over the rocks to get ashore. I'm sure it was the watchful because it was Captain Grey and he always used to let us come down and have tea with carnation milk. <laughs> and he would let you steer the boat and things like that. When we first came minding the pier, there was no side steps, it was just the pier and steps on the end. And I've seen in old Orkney books, a cart back to the long side, horse and cart in the water, transferring stuff across the camp. And then they heightened in a bit. She's been heightened twice, I think, in my lifetime, and she's also been extended a bit. Maybe 1948, that sort of time, 48, maybe 49. There was a lot of men there, and uh, we asked them, what's happening, boy? And they said, well, we're going to go extend the pier. Oh, and how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to put shuttering up, close it at the end as well, so there's no way for the water again. We pump the water out, and then we'll fill it with cement. There was this man, they were putting him in some sort of suit. Huge, great heavy boots, great weights on his chest. I mean, the poor man could hardly stand up. Well, they've got his helmet on as well, of course, screwed up the front, guided him then onto a ladder. They disappeared into the water. We saw him on the bottom, and he slowly walked against the tide. And then he had bolts already at the bottom, and he began to do all those up on the shuttering. So he drew the shuttering together, came to the foot of the ladder, and he got him to the surface, and the man was exhausted. That's what cut the steepness off that pier road, as I say. Before that, it was longer and steeper, you see. You come on down the shanker, and then you're there, which helped a bit with frost enough. So the, the piece of they are supposed to give her a shelter at the steps, and it does help, you can, but it still can be tricky in southeast, can be. Long before it had any extensions on it, when it was awash with the water, you, you couldn't see the pier. The pier was just under the water. Gandun the tractor was a bit risky then. You couldn't, there was no guardrails, you couldn't see the, no verge either, you can. It could be tricky right enough. I used to reverse down there. Cattle floats for kaya board and everything, you can. No effing difficult person doing even the transport box on, you can. Your nerve goes, you see, this is the thing. It was a great advantage, this extending the pier. Because at some tides, you couldn't, you couldn't use the pier because the wind and the tide were wrong. And if the tide was too high, you could get the boat landed on top of the pier. So when the wave went down, the boat was left high and dry on the pier. And it rolled over and was damaged, and people were injured. It was really when the high head came that uh, they had to get that extra pier. Uh, it was much better if we could get the boat in, hoist it off with a steam winch, and it could winch things ashore, swing it ashore, and land on the, on the pier. So that was much handier. And the same with getting cattle away. Uh, instead of having to take it all, them all down to Longhope and go to Kirkwall, they could actually get them off that way, over to the this market. Then we didn't have a regular service like what we have now. You had to hire the boat to come to Hoy from Strumness. The person that ran the boat was a fellow called Ginger Brown. 
and he would take across ones that maybe wanted to go to Rockwick or even sometimes they might want to go to Linus or Longhop. Tinterbrun, he took on uh, Stevie Moat, had with Stevie then that they used to run Tinterbrun spot just for a short time. I just worked hard on the late Angus Brown, a changer, as we called him. I got a phone call one night from him and he asked me to take the old train, which was passenger launch he ran, across the hoy in the morning. You see, was not fit. He took a turn in the night and died. For then on, I ran the service for his wife, old Peggy. So eventually she said that I want to buy the chain, so I said, oh, fine that. We ran it for, I can't mind how many years it was, and a letter from the Highland Board asking me if I wanted a new boat. So I said, I wouldn't mind, Miss old Jane was getting, she was only a place launch. She was rather low in the head. So it carried on and we got accepted for it and uh, it was built in Holland and taken to Strumness and Arthur Sinkler from Mackay's boatyard. They fitted it out. And that was the Scott the Ranger. Carried 12 folk, but uh, she had a rough, rough life. The number of passengers wanting to travel to and from Hoy was too much for small boats like the Scapa Ranger. Robbie Sutherland bought the Herta from Hugh Burley. She could carry about 36 folk. So we ran her for two or three years. And then Hugh, he bought the Jesse Ellen. So the Jesse Ellen could carry 59. And we ran that for a lot of years back and forth. And that's the way it carried on for a while. But the need for greater capacity kept increasing, and so the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency got involved. We'd drawn up plans for sales of what we thought we needed. Dennis Davidson, he's, he's, an, he's a naval architect. They got the job of doing the final designs for it, and it was built in June 96. I ran it then for the council, and it went straight into service. <laughs> It was named the Gramsci in Gramsci, <laughs> the Gramsci Pier. <laughs> yeah, the whole head was up lying at one side of the pier and we were at the other side and all the ribbons and balloons and crazy. <laughs> I think all the drink was on the whole head and we got none. <laughs> the new vessel made a huge difference to the community. Once the Gramsci came on the go, we had the crane and we had that cars and fuel and tanks and stuff like that. We used to take some sheep, cut a lot of sheep. I think I managed to get about 150 sheep aboard the thing once. If you travelled here on the Gramsci today, we hope you had a fine crossing. It's not always like that. You get the wind against the tide, it's a nasty, nasty piece of water. Like The biggest lump I ever had was the southeast corner of Gramsci, heading for Hoi. <laughs> and that was with the, with the Gramsci and what a right at the top of the wheelers, solid water. The three years in the wheelers sitting down because <laughs> the wind is coming. But no, wind in Creel fisherman Frankie Sinkler knows these waters well. You see, the rocks are lying like that, big faces like that. You'll see it in on the shore, and if the tide goes through, it's hitting that faces and boiling over. You've got to watch two or three in the out in the boat about the May time, about the time the gulls lay. It, it could be flat calm, but you've got a tremendous swell. 
a big heavy swale, you know, but there's no gaggling as we call it, you know, no roughness, it's just a big swale. You get a big one, it'll come and it'll break away outside you, and that's you head it. They call it a shorty sea, that's what they call that, yeah. I mind the fella, he left here one morning, he went out, month of May, and it wasn't a drop of wind, just a big heavy sea. He wanted me brother to go in, but he wouldn't go, one of me brothers, and uh, you've never heard tale again. He got as far as the uh, far side of Rackbrook and his boat was flying smashed in pieces up a gyo there. Bad weather and heavy swells weren't enough to keep out the enemy craft. Between 1914 and 1957, Scapa Flow was the naval base of the British Grand Fleet. Block ships were deliberately sunk in the smaller channels to prevent Germans gaining access into Scapa Flow. Donnie McKinnon remembers the operation. I think I was in a pram watching. Well, I would have been in a pram because I was born in 1939. And I was with Nan outside at King's house. The ships were in place and they had explosives on board. And there was a, a tug there which went up and then it backed off. And then there was a bang. And then I'm sure the middle ship went down first and then the others followed. And then they just remained there for years. Terry Thompson and some of his mates used to go on there and fish from there. And there were plenty of fish around there, but you couldn't stay for very long. Recently, the last of the block ships, the Inverlane, sank from view. Many other vessels lie on the seabed around these waters. Shipwrecks that did not survive the adverse weather conditions. We had a shipwreck of that, that across the hill that uh, was off Bremister there. Delightful, the, the boat was called actually. So west wind, offshore wind, no much sea at that time. And uh, what happened is the day got on, the wind jumped round to northwest in a very short time. And uh, a man, the, the judge asking the skipper, and what lake was he conditions when you came back for so always says no 26 feeter boat could ever stay afloat when we come back. Back then, no way, no way, nah, nah. So that shows the danger of always on, you see, and the sudden change just like that. Uh, but most of the time, the shipwrecks I'm seeing, it's all been weather, yes, but the most important thing of all, it's lack of the local knowledge, I think, you can. It's not so important, no, because everything's so well instrumented and different things, you can. But I'm, because I'm old fashioned, and my idea of boats is old fashioned, no. But uh, I do think that the uh, local knowledge is still often important again. That was an Aberdeen trawler that went ashore just inside Hoi Sound here called the Strath Elliot. You could walk out to that one in low water. With all them ashore at Selwick, the whole 12 of them. Bridges boy again, according to the cliff. The cliff's high, but no near as high as when I got the scared, eh? So the th and that was about a quarter of a mile off the shore. It's quite unusual in a rescue when you mention that, Clay, because that was the longest British Boy rescue ever done in this country, anywhere. It was about a quarter of a mile off the shore, 440 yards. That's a lot of raw boot, a lot. And uh, the thing was that when, you, when the man was in the British Boy, the distance between the ship and shore, the sag in the middle, you're pulling them along, you saw everybody's getting above water level. And, and through Lancy as well. A very sc scary experience again. Very scary. Ah, yes. But the rescue of the 12th, the 12th again. Come out the Willow's window, you can. Ah. We always went out for plunder. 
One thing insurance had written the ship off, which I thought I lost. Well, either the sea claimed it or you got it. And uh, I'll tell you what we got off. We got the transceiver equipment, which was all Marconi. So that should be in the wireless museum. We took a lot of the stuff we saw. Me and my brother had a 12-man raft to move to the South Elliot. And we thought this would be perfect for going in the, the mill dam itself, when you came. So we got the shore. Kept, very buoyant, kept like carrying 12 men, you see. So we're going along and we're pushing along in the mud. Of course, the meat pole stuck and said, let them go, I held on. <laughs> and ended up with up to the armpits in muddy water. <laughs> and shouting help. <laughs> My mother, well, I won't repeat when she saw what was happening. <laughs> but uh, that was my closest save <laughs> water right enough. The Lister City, that was where the seven men was lost. And they were homeward bound from Iceland, and the radar had packed up at Iceland, and of course the skipper Ray was Danish. That was the March of 1953. March was in strong stream tides in March, you see. So he's going across the sea towards Old Man Hoy, right? But what he didn't realise was, his wheel is going ahead, he was getting the run sideways doing, and sideways doing his wheel, you see. So when she did strike, he thought he was running, running the back or or ahead, you see. But instead of that, she stopped below the head and hoy and bribes there. That much side swaying about as well, you see, as you're going ahead, you can. There's a tremendous tides that roar ahead. With the ebb tide, you've got to watch yourself with the ebb tide. If it's westerly wind, you get tremendous lumps of broken water, and, you know. You'll never live in it, but yeah, you need to know the tides around about that place is all right. We were home at the time, we were in a home at Lynx is there. I'm warning you the next morning. This had happened the night before, you see. But I mind the old, uh, old Jess for Lynx, they were coming down and saying to me and the brother, Mike, where's your head today? Do you know, get there's another trailer ashore. We set off across the hill as quick as we could go, of course, then. And uh, a lot of winds are up. Uh, I think Long Hop Coast Guard have been called on different ones. And she was, she was a ground right now, but she was, she was whole, but you could see even then, I reckon at the trailer the, the backward was broken. But it seemed to be moving at a different time, and the funnel seemed very slack as well again. Of course, the whole island then turned out, and the rest of the Strathelit was the same. And half of the women of Hoyle was there. You can't get them close to them and different things. And uh, Mary was the lady that I'm, and Charlie, her brother, he was a strong man, a good job he was. He was carrying some of that trailer made uphill to, to the head again. Open us back, uh -huh. That was very, very risky, that. Jimmy Moore's parents nursed one of the survivors, Eric Howard, back to health. And years later, Jimmy found a life belt from the trawler in a boathouse. He alerted Eric's son, Colin Howard, and the life belt is now in the National Fishing Heritage Centre in Grimsby. If one man sitting under the, under the rock, he turned to be the mate of the, of the ship we came. But he seemed all right. Now he says, I'm, I'm a Richard waiting to go and look for, uh, there's a young decky learner aboard. They came for all tight knit fishing music, Grimsby again. There's a young decky learner, I did say to the parents, I would keep an eye for him. You go and find him first of all, and I'll be all right to come back. So they went and they found the young boy with high circle. They said, anybody who had been coming to that. Then they came back for the mate, but uh, he'd go and make sports in the meantime, we came, aha, aha, died under the of fear there. They weren't drooling so much, but when they abandoned ship, the hypothermia was staying over, of course, and when they got them up to the, the Hayden Hoy, 
uh, and the side of the fire. They'd hold, physically hold them back, or they would have stuck their hands in the in the embers. You see, he came the hypothermia. Does that he came? Uh, it's a, it's a fierce, fearful story that was. In Hoi Heritage Centre, you can see one of the embossed wallets given in gratitude to island men who assisted in the rescue by the owners of the Leicester City. This one was given to the Laird, Malcolm Stewart. The women who aided the rescue were given engraved mirrored compacts, the vanity at odds perhaps with their challenging feat of saving men. The area beyond the pier is known as Lynxness and now houses the Benethel Cafe. Bear Creekland stretches along the shore encompassing the sands of Claybrick and to the Boo Farm above the shore. Among the many residents of the Boo since Viking times are folklorist George Marwick and botanist James Sinkler, who we will meet on the later walk on the old road. James was attentive to seaweeds and the shore. He wrote, There is a wonderful opportunity to observe seaweeds, for here they occur in unsurpassed luxuriance. Unpolluted by the sewage of the great towns, washed in all the purity of the northern oceans. The lure of the shore, the call of the sea, there is no end to the adventure in the realms of this fascinating group the marine plants. The Boo is one of the oldest farms in Hoy. Boo names were used for large principal farms of Orkney's Norse earls. The Boo of Hoy is listed in the earliest surviving rental for Hoy in 1492 and is still farmed today. The present house dates to the 17th century Current residents are Terry and Jean Thompson. The Earls ruled Orkney at that time, and it would have been the duty of the man who lived at not only our boo, but other boos in Orkney as well, to look after the Earl and his party when they're visiting the districts. It would be the man's job to supply the Earl with his horses and his ladies for the week. So I should tell us to the tourists in the bus. And I said, by the way, I live in that boo. I says, but. I gave up on the horses, they were too expensive. There's only one lady left, but she's far too expensive, but she won't believe me. South of the Boo are the remains of the medieval parish Kirk. Hoy and Grahamsey parishes were united in the 16th century. The pulpit that can be seen in Hoy Kirk Heritage Centre used to be here. The three wooden panels on the pulpit were said to be from a Spanish Armada wreck, later carved to commemorate a minister. The Kirk was in ruins by the late 18th century and remains roofless today. A gravestone dated 1733 with heraldic inscriptions can still be found inside, and the kirkyard is the last resting place for islanders to this day. The two-storey house at the junction of the shore road and the steep hill is Borough House. It was built in the late 18th century as the manse. The crow steps on the gable ends here and at Orgel Lodge are distinctive features on Orkney houses. Sir Walter Scott visited Hoy to research the Dwarfy Stone for inclusion in his book, The Pirate. He visited Borough House and took tea with the minister. 
Margaret Moore also once took tea at Borough House. I had a job at Borough House for this uh, commander and Mrs Mackenzie, Mary Mackenzie. When I was finished my work, she would make a cup of china tea and we would also have a slice or a sponge that she had baked. She was a great one for the garden. This one morning she had got up, looked out through the bedroom window. The bedroom was on the first floor and looked out onto a flower bed. So she happened to spot this rabbit. So she had said to Commander Mackenzie for him to go and get his shotgun. So he quietly lifted up the window and fired Mr. Rabbit, but shot the heads off a, quite a lot of the flowers. <laughs> and when she was telling me this, I was doing my best not to laugh. It was no laughing matter for her, you can, because she was quite upset about it. The property next door is the Glebe, which was once the man's farm. William Clouston was the first postmaster in Hoy around 1871 and operated from the Glebe. The next postmaster was Robert Mackenzie in 1891, operating from a small cottage on the grounds of Borough House. He delivered mail by ox and cart, known as the Hoy Express. Ebenezer Moore, one-time teacher at Rackwick School, took over next in 1901, running from his home, Burnhouse, halfway up the steep road. It was also a grocery store and a bank, and in later years became the telephone exchange for the parish, as well as having an outside telephone box. Ebenezer was the first postmaster not to deliver the mail, that was the job of his adopted son, Isaac Moore. Isaac later said, I was born into the post office. Isaac would deliver mail by bicycle and on foot until he was old enough to be entrusted with a pony and cart. During the war, he remembers a 10-mile walk to deliver a telegram to a remote detachment of soldiers. With beaming smiles, they each gave him a shilling, raising his wages more than tenfold. That was the best payment I ever got. When Ebenezer passed in 1930, Isaac took the reins. Well, Jimmy's father, he was in quite a lot of things. Postmaster, he was also a county councillor. He had to do with the lifeboat. Oh, he ran the hostel, that was it. There was so many things uh, that he did. Isaac's son, Jimmy, served as postman for 27 years, delivering mail by car. Jimmy was the inspiration for Sir Peter Maxwell Davis' composition, Chimak the Posty. Isaac had been postmaster for Hoy for 50 years when he died in 1980. The head office in Kirkwall didn't want to continue with the post office in Hoy, but luckily, Local uproar thwarted that decision. A new postmistress was appointed. Cathy Clark operated from her home, Garson. 
times had moved on as Cathy had a satellite link and a computer system. When Cathy couldn't run the post office anymore, it closed, ending a continuous run of nearly 150 years. Cathy's daughter-in-law, Faye Clark, delivers the mail to this day, collecting it from the ferry at Moness. Oregle Farm and Lodge, sitting to the north of the Ward Hill, was once part of the Melsetry State, which encompassed most of the island. Having passed through several families, including the Moody's and Hadels, by the end of the 19th century, Hoy Parish was owned by Thomas and Theodosia Middlemore of Melsetter. The lodge was renovated in 1900 by famed architect William Letherby and now included kennels, garden walls and fine gate pillars. In 1908, Bloomsbury Group artist Duncan Grant and his partner, economist John Maynard Keynes, holidayed at Orgel Lodge. Arriving ahead of Keynes, Grant wrote to him of Rackwick, There is no priest, no church and no policeman. Don't you think we'd better go there at once? In 1947, Hoy was put on the market. The buyer Malcolm Stewart had served time in Orkney with the Royal Navy, enjoying summers at Orgel Lodge. It's now home to the Groats, who farm Orgel. I used to come up here when I was working the farm very often, uh, when Mr Stewart was here. Uh, if the water supply was low, we used to pump water out of the barn up to a cedar tank in the, the roof of the lodge, which was quite, quite high up, you came. We had a power drum pump there, and then another job I had for him always was uh, taking in coke he worked with. A special borough for coke for burning the big rayburners down there, you came. But I mind you, when, when the security here and Mrs. Security, they did get in the in the working of the lodge, you came, old handyman, he used to live down the road there. There were less frames for first plant and stuff in and different things, you came. And then in the lodge house, they used to have uh, servants as well. Sometimes two, two German lassocks used to work there, and sometimes all Wallace's niece, Miss Elwick, who belonged to Sandy, she came come out and she was employed with him for a while again. And I went, all Mrs. Stewart always threw up a boot in a, a kind of break, we wouldn't back on it again, understanding her mind about her most of all. She always went not to dash on dogs again. Again, like so long, such as dogs, the girl again, called her along in it. My grandfather, Arthur Burnett, was the factorer for Melsetter Estate between 1933 and 1939. He liked to walk the hills with the head gamekeeper, Jimmy Gray, and he spoke about lochans on the moors and of climbing the Ward Hill. He was a keen angler himself, and he was asked to catch fish for the big house and told he could have some for his own family. He spoke of the preparations made for game shooting and angling tenants at the lodges, including the lodge at Orgill. He drove the maids to the lodge in his car with freshly laundered linen for the tables and the beds. That car was one of the first to be privately owned on the island 
My aunt, who travelled in her preschool days on top of the linen, carefully covered, tells of a sort of carnival atmosphere in these trips. activity in the wartime right now, maybe, but by that time it wasn't very much. Actually, go on or not, the same. You know, Stuart came back, maybe, he used to go away about September time. He would come back again in March, May or April time then again. Just for short centuries go abroad sometimes, I think, in between. They separated, and Mr. Stewart been away for a lot of years before that, actually. But uh, Malcolm Stewart himself used to come back and forth here the whole time. Nearby Oracle Farm dates to the late 19th century, with the farmhouse and buyers arranged around a square courtyard. I don't know when it was actually built, but it must have been a big, big undertaking all the same. Big undertaking there. When we were on the road to Selwick to the school, we used to pass there, and I mind you, I thought at the time it was quite a big firm, lesson, and big buildings all around, and in a, in a fashion of age you can. And the design was a room, the square right room, the southern crest room. And then in the arch, in the arch of the wall, there's water tanks built into the walls. And while they, there's double, there's double uh, walls from there, you see. And the arches in between, when that, that was your water supply to the beast below the Indian. And another way, too, it was a wee bit, it was a bit ahead of its time because, say, uh, in that days, you fed the animals at the head instead of at the back. He kind of was laid up for the head, head feeding. No, of course, it's, it's, it's all different for his tombstones and, and the louse cats, courts and things. But when the kai were tied in the cell, there was a passage that you went in there and get, get the animals for the head, or others at the, at the back again. I think uh, Mr. Stewart extended the one at the end so he got his lorry, he could get in underneath there again. But the rest are still the original arches, still to this day again. When Tommy grew up, he took a job at the farm for quite some time. In 1968, I think, when I started, actually. I think so. I was there back and forth for about 50 years. Without it, I likely went into probably maybe even move off the island for work or, or get a lot work somewhere else anyway. enjoyed this first episode from the Tales Ahoy and you'll join us for our next journey along the old road. Visit our Hoy Heritage website and find out more about the people, places and the Tales Ahoy.